0: Thank you, Peter and Stephen. Uh, let's pray. Loving Father, as we uh, continue to hear your word, having heard it read and now we spend some time thinking about it, we, we pray that you'd help us to be realistic about ourselves and humble before you and open to changing in the way that you would have us change. So please speak to us clearly, Father, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in 19- Different world. Uh, it was a less cynical, less jaded world. Uh, I was in year seven. I was a bike riding, cricket playing kid. Um, and there was a series of ads on the TV that year which came to mind while I was thinking about today's passage. Um, the ads posed the question what if near enough had been good enough for certain historical figures? And the one that I could find on the internet was uh, what if near enough had been good enough for Noah? Um, there's Noah and the Ark, and all the animals are gathered around. And Noah had a voice remarkably like Bob Hawke, uh, and he says, uh, "There's been a bit of a muck up." He's talking to the animals. Uh, I don't think we can fit all you blokes in. How about we take one of you each instead? Um, so obviously it have worked. Um, then on the screen, you're not engaged. Now it's. Uh, <laughs> On the screen it says, near enough is not always good enough. And then the jingle uh, came up, um, encouraging everybody to do their best. Even when we've done our best, let's do it even better. Um, If if near enough had been good enough for Noah, then things would not have gone so well after the flood. Um, There was also an ad about Captain Cook, what if near enough had been good enough for Captain Cook and he only discovered Spain instead of Australia. Uh, What if near enough had been good enough for Michelangelo and something about the Sistine Chapel not being as good as it is? Uh, What if near enough had been good enough for the Chinese and they had the great fence instead of the great wall? Um, uh, It was a good thing that none of those people said, near enough is good enough. What was the point of those ads? Uh, They were Australian government ads um, encouraging us to advance Australia, give it all we've got. Do you remember the jingle? No. Well, I did, and I was only 12 at the time. Uh, the world was. No. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> anyway, um, I was reminded of those ads because, um, as we've heard in, in previous weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling his followers to a surpassing righteousness in, in this sermon. He was claiming to introduce the kingdom of heaven into this world, and the chief mark of the kingdom has to be righteousness. Is what Jesus is saying to his followers. So what should our attitude be to righteousness? What if near enough were good enough for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven when it comes to righteousness? Jesus is saying it cannot be good enough just to get some of the way. Now this is a contrast to the Jews of his day who were very tied up with the Old Testament law uh, but the law did not produce the kind of righteousness that God requires for his kingdom because the people played all kinds of games with the law, uh, which effectively lowered the bar of what righteousness looked like in their minds. And so what Jesus is, is doing here is he's saying, no, the bar, the bar is not down here, now that i brought the kingdom of heaven. It is up here. And so he, uh, he's been having a go at the Jews' attitude to that uh, throughout chapter 5. For example, their attitude was, as long as I don't physically murder anybody, then I follow the commandment and I'm righteous. Jesus said, no, you're not righteous as long as there is hatred in your hearts." Or the Jews said, well, as long as I don't actually physically commit adultery, then I'm righteous. Jesus says, well, what about the lust in your hearts? That has to be dealt with. So he's saying near, near enough is not good enough when it comes to the righteousness of the kingdom. He won't let us lower the standard for ourselves if we are citizens of his kingdom. And so today we're looking at three more issues the issues of integrity and meekness and grace. Three areas in which I think we often settle for near enough because they're so challenging, the things that Jesus is talking about here, um, that I think we tend to give up on full righteousness and just think, well, I'll do what I can and that'll have to be good enough. Jesus is saying that no matter how impossible it might be, we have to settle for nothing less than 100% righteousness of the heart and the character in all of these things that he's talking about. So the first aim that he gives us in verses 33 to 37 is unlimited integrity of character. Now I imagine that uh, probably many of us are able to say that we don't tell bald-faced lies very often. We probably don't see ourselves as liars. But Complete truthfulness is another thing. Um, The Old Testament made provision for people to make vows before God. And it assumed that people would swear by the name of their God, which was the Lord. But the Jews in Jesus' day had developed this huge body of law around oath-taking. These are the right words you have to use. You have to say this. You can't say that. And if you say it like that, then it won't be properly binding. Sort of like contract law in the ancient world. But the overall effect of that was not to promote truthfulness. It was actually to limit truthfulness because what it did was it made some words more serious than others. Um, If you're in the habit of swearing an oath to confirm the words that you've just said uh, and at one point you give your word to someone without swearing an oath, does that mean it's okay for you to break that one because you didn't swear on that one? See, some words become more serious than others. Um, If you're a parent, you may have had... Um, conversations to this effect with your children as as I have I vividly remember I can't remember the context but um, I was trying to establish the facts in some household situation right what's what's going on here so you know who ate the last chocolates or whatever it might have been and he said I swear to you this time I am swearing to you that I'm telling the truth So it's obvious what the reaction is. So does that mean that all the other times when you don't swear, I can't trust what you've said to me? See, there's a hierarchy in words then if if you're in the habit of swearing. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Don't break your oath, but fulfil to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is, is, is his footstool, Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I don't think he's talking about situations in which we are required to swear oaths, like if you go into court and you're giving evidence or something. He's talking about situations in which we are tempted to voluntarily offer an oath to confirm our word as if you're telling someone something and you need to really convince them and so you voluntarily offer them an oath at the same time. The examples he gives here are examples in which somebody might be playing games with the truth by swearing oaths. Uh, Some Jews thought that if you don't specifically mention the name of God in your oath, then it wasn't actually binding. You might swear an oath on heaven or on the earth or you might swear into jerusalem or you might swear on your own head and then because you didn't specifically mention god or you didn't get the formula exactly right you can then turn around at some point and say ah but i didn't do it exactly right it's not specifically binding Jesus says, well, even if you didn't mention God, it all comes back to God anyway. Jerusalem comes back to God, heaven comes back to God, the earth comes back to God, and even if you swear on your head, he's the only one who can make your hairs white or black. So I think basically he's saying, don't play games with the truth. It's the evil one who plays games with the truth, not the people of God. It's better not to swear at all. It's better if your character is your guarantee rather than some magic formula of words that you're drawing on. Now, it's true that in the Bible, you will see God swearing oaths. And if you read the New Testament, sometimes you read Paul's letters and he swears an oath in his letters. He calls God as his witness, for example, about something that he's saying. But I think that uh, they were not implying that their oaths were more trustworthy than their other words when they swore their oath. They They weren't playing games with the truth there, they weren't being shifty. They were underlining that this word is trustworthy. For example, Paul, just like all the words that I've written to you are trustworthy. So I think the point here is that it's not that all oaths are sinful. The point is that all our words should be trustworthy and completely truthful. So in a sense, oaths aren't necessary. So you may not be a bald-faced liar yourself. You're not in the habit of telling straight-out lies. But how often do you tell a story in a way that suits your purpose. Um, Maybe you'll leave the bits out that make you look bad, or maybe you'll embellish the bits that make somebody else look bad to suit your own purpose. Or how often do you give a report uh, with your own spin or your own slant so that the person sees things the way that you want them to see them and interprets the facts the way that you want them to interpret them? Um, and if you're doing that and you don't disclose what you're doing, then you're not being completely honest. And I think if we analyse ourselves, we all do this from time to time. Uh, we put our slant on things. We try to, to give people impressions that suit us, even though we're not straight out lying. And I think we all some, we're all probably capable of recognising people who we can't completely trust. They may not lie to us, but you know that if they tell you something, there will be another side that you've got to find out from somebody else. You know, and that's an integrity issue. And Jesus says, if you are one of my people, you can't be like that. You can't be the person who people can't completely trust when you speak to them, that they're always going to assume you have a hidden agenda and you're playing some sort of game. He says, no, we need to be people of absolute integrity who speak plainly. Yes is yes, no is no. There are no hidden ifs or buts or agendas, just transparency and honesty. That's the way of righteousness for the people of God's kingdom because God is a God of truth. Um, So that is the first of today's aims, unlimited integrity in our characters, no shiftiness. The second aim here in verses 38 to 42 is unlimited meekness. Uh, The concept of meekness in your mind may not be all that inspiring, um, especially if you see meekness as being sort of a timid little mouse who just gets uh, walked over all the time. But in fact, meekness is a very radical choice to be deeply selfless. Uh, In situations of conflict, meekness sort of basically means letting the other person win. That's basically it. It's me versus you and I'm going to let you win. Jesus teaches here that meekness is not for the faint-hearted. Now, the Jews interpreted the law in a way that discouraged meekness. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The Jews did something with that principle. Now, that quote comes from various places in the Old Testament. It obviously gives a fairly logical standard of justice. That sounds fair, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, and the principle was originally given in the Old Testament to regulate official judicial decisions within Israel. This is a community in which there is justice. It's not the law of the jungle. But by Jesus' time, it was also being applied to personal ethics, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's my right. someone does something to me, then I have a personal right to get them back, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so, therefore, when it's applied to personal ethics it discourages mercy and meekness and it encourages insisting on my rights and you know I have to get eye for eye and tooth for tooth if you do something to me. Jesus teaches something in response to that that uh, may have made as little sense to them back then as it does to us today. He says in verse 39 but I tell you do not resist an evil person Now, he's not talking to um, police in the line of duty, or soldiers on the battlefield, or judges whose job it is to give justice. He's talking about the personal realm here. And he's not even talking to you if you're walking down the street and you see an old lady getting beaten up by a mugger. He's not saying, do not resist an evil person. Let the mugger do whatever he wants with that poor old lady. No, you're, you're called to step in in that situation. He's talking about me reacting to the evil that is done against me and my own personal reaction to that. And he gives four examples in which he tells his followers that the way of righteousness is to surrender their right to stick up for themselves. The slap on the cheek, a gross insult in that culture. Someone slaps you on the cheek, it's they dishonouring you. He says, give up your honour. Offer them the other cheek as well. Let them win. The legal proceeding, someone is suing you for the shirt on your back. Jesus says, give them your cloak too. And in Old Testament law, the cloak is the one thing you have every right to keep. No one can take your cloak away from you. He says, give them your cloak as well. The Roman soldier who forces you to carry his equipment for a mile, which was humiliating, time-consuming. I really want to go that way, but this guy's making me go that way for a mile. Jesus says, give them your time, go a second mile. Let them win. Take the insult. And the one who asks to borrow your hard-earned money, he says, don't turn away from them. Let them win. So those are four examples of an attitude of unlimited meekness, that is, a refusal to stick up for yourself and your own rights. Total selflessness. Give up your honour, give up your comfort, give up your time, give up your money to the person who doesn't deserve it, they don't resist an evil person, he says. The main point is that we are not supposed to be insisting on our eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The world works that way, but Christians need to be different. We need to be thinking about the other person, not our own rights. In other words, we should be meek. That's the way of righteousness. Now again, uh, we shouldn't interpret this too narrowly. We need to apply it thoughtfully. It's not to be sort of You know, each of those four examples followed to the letter literalistically. For example, how would it be if I gave all of our money away to whoever asked for it? Um, I'd soon have no money left to give away. Who would really be helped in that situation, we might ask. So there's a thoughtfulness that needs to go with applying these things. But the main point is that my priority should never be my rights, if it's simply a matter of who wins, him or me, I'm supposed to choose him, even though he is an evil person, perhaps. He is more important than me. That's the bottom line. Now, I don't need to tell you that this teaching makes absolutely no sense to most people, and perhaps it hardly makes sense to us. Um, it goes against the grain of every sinful, self-important instinct that we have, and um, and perhaps our instincts of self-preservation are also offended by what Jesus says here. How can I give myself away? How can I become such a fool as to just let everybody win all the time over the top of me? But it's not foolish, it's the way of righteousness, he says. And if you're a Christian, you know that you don't have to look after yourself all the time. You have somebody else who's looking after you. What does Jesus promise? "'Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth.'" is the promise so he's telling us to do this and to take this seriously you don't have to near enough is not good enough Um, we can trust God so that's the second thing unlimited meekness um, plenty to think about the third aim here is unlimited grace verses 43 to 47 Uh, I think it's a fairly common sentiment to think well I love I love my family and I love select people who I really like Um, And therefore, I'm a loving person. But of course, even axe murderers love their mothers and the people who love them, or so I'm told. The test of your love is not how you are with the people who love you. The test of your love is how you are with the people who don't like you. Are you able to love them? Now again, the Jews of Jesus' day twisted the Old Testament law such that it limited love and grace rather than promoting it. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to hate your enemy. Um, But the way they interpreted the command to love your neighbour basically came around to hating your enemy anyway. Because if you start asking, well, who is my neighbour? Who do I have to love? Then the next step is to say, well, who can I exclude from my love? And if you are deliberately withholding your love from somebody, then it's only a short step from there to hating that person, isn't it? So love your neighbour and hate your enemy is the way that the tradition developed. Jesus tackles the question of uh, who is my neighbour elsewhere in Luke chapter 10. Remember, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbour is anybody who needs you to be their neighbour, even your enemy in that parable. And here he teaches likewise. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, says Jesus. In other words, our circle of love and goodwill should not be closed in around our favourite family members and a few select friends, a tight little circle of the people that we choose to love. Our circle of love should be so wide that it even includes our enemies. Uh, Jesus says... Extends to the evil as well as the good. And so how can we call ourselves his children if we are not willing to do likewise? Everybody loves their friends, but loving our enemies is what marks us as the children of God and as the people whom Jesus has saved by dying for us when we were still his enemies. That's what we've received. And so true righteousness puts no limits on love and grace. Now, um what does this mean in our personal relationships? It may not be possible or appropriate for you to try to become best buddies with your enemy. It's it's probably unrealistic for you to think, oh, I'm going to have to start having coffee with them every week and, you know, giving them Christmas presents and all the rest of it. But loving them at least implies an inner disposition towards them from now on, which is one of goodwill. Uh, You will want the best for them if you love them. And at least that means you will express that by praying for them, which is what Jesus says to do here. He's quite realistic. He doesn't say, okay, now become their best friend. Loving them at least involves praying for them, which implies an inner disposition within yourself, even if the relationship itself uh, isn't restored. Um, Our prayers go up for that person because our heart has gone out to them. That is what Jesus is calling for from us Uh, and of course if there are other opportunities to do good for them we will take those opportunities as well beyond just praying. Now um, of course no one else has ever taught the way that Jesus teaches here. This seems to go against the laws of nature, the laws of self-preservation. It certainly goes against the way that most people operate these days or in this world which is to nurse grievances and to hold grudges and to build walls and to write people off and to snipe and to hate. That's the way of the world. We might think, how can anybody possibly love their enemies? Well, it would be impossible to show grace if we hadn't received exactly that same kind of grace from God on the cross, and that's where it starts. And maybe we're capable of more than we think we are, Um, I was uh, at Little Athletics yesterday morning watching my kids uh, run around and one of them was doing the high jump. I'd never seen him do high jump before and they were setting up the bar and I was thinking, no human being could clear that. It just looks so incredibly high and my son came running up and he jumped and he missed the first one but then he made it over and I just thought I never knew he was capable of that. That's absolutely incredible. Um, we're, possibly we're just capable of more than we think we are if we're willing to give it a try. Um, So loving your enemies, maybe you can do it. At least you're called to try. What would be a real tragedy is if we found this so challenging that we just give up and we say, well, near enough is good enough. You know, I'll just love my friends and pretend to be righteous and my enemies can go to hell, but I'll maintain a veneer of righteousness Or, I'll just get what I'm owed and I'll make sure that I always win when it counts and I'll look after myself, but I'll just put a veneer of niceness over the top of that. Or, yes, I'll play the games that I need to play in order to get where I need to go. I'll just try not to become completely dodgy, but I'll be as manipulative manipulative as the next person under the surface. It would be a tragedy if we felt that near enough is good enough and gave up on integrity and meekness and grace. Does Jesus think we're going to do all of this perfectly? No. He knew that he would have to die for us. But does he expect us to try to do it perfectly? Yes, he does, because this is the kingdom of heaven. This is not some earthly kingdom. We mustn't lower our standards. And so the message is don't stop short. Look at the last verse in this passage. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there you go. If we're called to the kingdom of heaven, what other standard could there be than the perfection of God's character himself, which is reflected in Jesus and everything Jesus did? So it's worth, I think, reflecting on Jesus' integrity and meekness and grace. Um, Now, as I'm speaking this to you, I'm just relating Jesus' words. Um, I'm very aware that I am very far short of these things and I assume that you're the same. Uh, Thinking nicely about the people whom I know don't like me particularly much is difficult. And surrendering myself to those who want to use me is difficult. It doesn't feel right. And not playing games to further my own interests, as I'm tempted to do all the time, is hard. But this needs to be our life's work. It doesn't matter how much money you make or whatever else. Our life's work is to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What if near enough had been good enough for Jesus Christ? I'll just tell them what they want to hear. I won't tell them the full truth. Or I won't give in to being mistreated. I'm going to stand up for my own rights and I'm not going to bother going to that cross or I'll just let my enemies go to hell, I won't pray for them, much less die for them. If near enough had been good enough for Jesus, then none of us would be here, none of us would be saved. So we can't do anything less than aim to be just like Jesus, Um, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's pray that God helps us to move in that direction at least. Father, your son Jesus commands us here to do things that uh, don't come naturally to our sinful natures. Uh, We are commanded here to do things that in some ways make no sense. But we pray that you would help us to at least aim for 100% righteousness, uh, to at least aim to be more like you in in these ways. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be people or moving towards being people of absolute integrity and absolute meekness and absolute grace and love. Please be changing us on the inside, as well as with the things that we do on the outside. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.